I pray that we have had a great week walking with Jesus. We are in the series, Who is Jesus? And today we're in Revelation chapter 2. The title of this message is A Penetrating Gaze. Sometimes we would like to be able to see more than we actually see. We want x-ray vision so that we can actually see to the heart of a matter. Sometimes we would like to have telescopic vision so that we would be able to see farther. How about about night vision? Then we would be able to see what, what is actually happening in the middle of the night. More powerful vision, more perceptive insight would enable us to maybe make better decisions, just to walk with an awareness of what is coming. The book of Revelation, it is given to the church by the Holy Spirit to enable the church to see what it normally wouldn't see, to see a bit farther. Sometimes it's called the apocalypse. Apocalypse, it just means revelation, unveiling, disclosure. This book, it provides perspective and hope in difficult times. The book of Revelation, it speaks to seven churches in seven cities, Today we would find them in western Turkey. At that time they were part of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Real churches, real people. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, Jesus, he reveals himself as one who walks among the churches. So as we gather here this morning, do we come together with the awareness that Jesus is present here among us? Jesus spoke to the churches of that time words of peace and comfort, and hope, words of warning, and rebuke. He misses nothing. What would he say to us this morning? Sometimes we welcome a penetrating gaze because we know that something is ailing us. We're not well. And so we we willingly submit to an x-ray or an MRI or a CT scan. We want what is wrong with us to be revealed, to be exposed. We know it's for our good. And then there are other times when we would rather not submit to the penetrating gaze of a specialist, especially when it comes to our innermost thoughts and feelings, our motivations, our intentions. We would prefer to remain in the dark where our hearts, our minds are hidden. What does Jesus see when he looks at us this morning? The letter we will study today is a message to the church in Thyatira, and it's a message for every disciple in every era, in every city, including ours. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Revelation 2, 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality." Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to whom to, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So these words, they are intended to give direction to the disciples in Thyatira. How does Jesus present himself to that church? Well, the first thing that he says about himself is that he is the Son of God. Why would he present himself that way? The language at the beginning of this short letter and at the end, it comes from Psalm 2, where the Son of God is ruling over the kingdoms of this world and he judges. Why does he say this? to the church of Thyatira. Well, Domitian, the Roman emperor, he considered himself to be the son of the most high god, Zeus. When Domitian's son dies, his son dies in 83 AD, he declares his own son to be a son of God. If you lived in Thyatira, then you would use coins with the image of the son of Domitian on them. He's standing on planet earth and holding seven stars. And so what Jesus is saying to the church is, I am the son of God who rules over the kingdoms of this world and I will judge. All will answer to me. He also says about himself that his feet are like burnished bronze. Chapter 115, like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. If you've read through the book of Daniel then in chapter 2, you will have read about a statue which represents the kingdoms of the world. The, the head is of gold, the chest is of silver, the waist of bronze, legs are of iron. The problem of the kingdoms of this world is in the feet, in the foundation. The feet are of iron and clay. And so when a stone is hurled in the direction of the statue, and that stone is Jesus, the kingdoms of this world, they just crumble. What is the foundation for the kingdom of Jesus? Burnished bronze. It's this mix of iron and copper. It's a mix of strength and durability. His kingdom is eternal. The holy and just kingdom of Jesus is eternal. It is unshakable. So in a world of kingdoms that are founded on shifted sands and shifted, Shifting sands and shifting images. Isn't it wonderful to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a part of the kingdom that is eternal, unshakable? Jesus says his eyes are like a flame of fire. His gaze, it penetrates, it sanctifies, it it reveals, it unveils. He sees through the shams, he sees through the disguises. Nothing escapes his gaze. Verse 24, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. The language here, it's reminiscent of Jeremiah 17.10. Jeremiah 17, we read, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So Jesus, he knows all things. He is never fooled by posturing. He is never fooled by social media messages. He's never fooled by fake news. 
He discerns everything. He sees everything. The encounter with Jesus, it always unveils who we truly are. The language is that his gaze literally penetrates our kidneys and our hearts. Before him, all things are laid bare. He is the ultimate x-ray, the ultimate MRI, the ultimate CT scan. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The only one capable of judging your innermost thoughts, intentions, motivations is Jesus himself. Paul is saying in this text, I can't judge myself. I'm incapable of judging myself. You are incapable of judging yourself. The only one that can judge us is the righteous judge, Jesus himself. Jesus says in verse 23, I will give to each of you according to your works. This doesn't mean that we are now saved by our works. We're not working for our salvation. What it means is that the life of a true disciple will be evidenced by its works. Those that abide in the true vine, they naturally produce the fruit of the kingdom. Remember that quote from Andrew Murray last week. The essential idea of fruit is that it is the silent, natural, restful produce of our inner life. Silent, natural, restful produce of our inner life. Just as the fruit reveals the true nature of the tree, so the fruit of our lives, it it reveals what is within us. No one makes a fool of Jesus. No one deceives him. He discerns everything. Jesus is the one who searches mind and heart. He discerns everything. He sees it all. He's the only one with the authority to judge and the capacity to judge. Now, why does Jesus present himself this way to the church of Thyatira? Thyatira was this prosperous commercial city. It was a working city. It was famous for its trade guilds. Here's a list. Bakers, tanners, bronze smiths, potters, linen workers, wool merchants, shoemakers, and on and on. Now the thing is, in order to participate in a trade guild, you had to worship the patron god. Each trade guild had its god that it would worship. Banquets would be held. And the expectation was, if you were a part of that trade, that you would then worship the god, participate in the banquet. If you didn't participate in the banquet, if you didn't worship the God, then you were removed from the guild. And so you faced financial loss. You faced social isolation. You'd be on the margins. So Christians, they were tempted to compromise. How will Jesus address the church in Thyatira? Well, it's very interesting that he begins with affirmation. Look at what he says in verse 19. I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus often says to the churches, I know your deeds. I have accurate knowledge. I, I, I discern what you, what you do. To the church in Thyatira, he says, hey, in the midst of suffering and pressure, you've grown in good works. You actually practice more love. Your faith has been strengthened. You serve more. Your patient endurance, it's evident. You are growing. You are maturing in your discipleship. So if those words reflect you this morning, be encouraged. There are awesome promises on the way. 
Jesus also sees that the church needs exhortation. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Who is Jezebel? Well, the name is probably fictitious. The name Jezebel probably represents someone in the congregation, but no Jew would ever give this name to his daughter. I'll tell you why. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. She was a princess of Tyre and Sidon. And what she did was that she encouraged the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, to worship foreign gods. She used the power of her husband, King Ahab, to instill fear. She intimidated intimidated the prophets of the God of Israel. She intimidated Elijah. She supported 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. She was encouraging idolatry, pagan worship. In Thyatira, Jezebel is probably a member of the church. She considers herself to be a prophetess. She teaches the deep things. One of the things that she encourages is both-and thinking. What I mean by that is she encourages the church to embrace the following. You can follow Jesus and be a part of the trade guild. You can follow Jesus and keep your idols. You can follow Jesus and be engaged in sexual immorality. It doesn't matter. It works. It won't affect your relationship with Jesus. You can compromise. It's for your own social benefit. It's for your financial benefit. This is the way of wisdom. Some of you may have come from a religion where you worshipped idols, other gods, other saints, I pray that in your walk with Jesus, you have discerned that you cannot follow Jesus and keep your idols. Sometimes we keep our idols because they're just a part of the decoration. It's been with us for a long time. Sometimes we keep our idols because of their economic value. They're actually worth something. Sometimes we keep our idols because they're just a part of our family heritage, and so there's a sentimental value. We hold on to them. We need to know that the idols, the gods, the saints, they represent spiritual realities. They're not neutral. We cannot follow Jesus and carry our idols with us at the same time. If we are hanging on to our idols, we will remain parked spiritually. You cannot grow in Jesus and hang on to other gods, other saints, other idols. In Western culture... We live in a rather secular world. We think that we can just get rid of all of the idols, gods, and saints and follow our own path. What happens in the vacuum is that we end up idolizing ourselves. We put ourselves at the center. Yesterday, in a uh, seminar here at Willingdon, Rick Gosen, he conducted a seminar called Christians at Work. And one of the things that he said is that in our world today, we think we can craft our own spirituality. We can follow the human potential movement. And what that movement teaches is that we can construct our own identity. We can be self-made. Essentially, we don't need God. We can just follow our own intuitions, our own desires, and be the people that we want to be. 
And the thing is, if we don't have a clear understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, we will be seduced by this overwhelming message that comes from the world around us. We cannot follow Jesus as Savior and Lord and idolize ourselves Monday through Friday. Can't do that. Look at what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, if you have followed Jesus for a while, you would have heard those verses multiple times. Maybe you've memorized them. If Jesus' teaching is so clear, why are we seduced by the teaching of Jezebel? Why would the church in Thyatira be seduced? It's interesting that she comes with teaching. People are enamored with her profound secrets. She's revealing what they haven't been taught. There's more. She reveals to them the mysteries of esoteric religion. She claims to be taking people deeper. And if they just understand the deeper things, they'll understand that, yeah, they can have Jesus and what the trade guilds offer as well. Why does Jesus detest this both-and kind of thinking? Why is it so deplorable to him? Well, those that embrace this both-and thinking, what we call syncretism in our day, kind of the mixing of religious paths, the mixing of schools of thought, the reason that he detests it so much is because those that, detest, that, that, that embrace it no longer follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. He's no longer the true vine. He is no longer the only Savior and Lord. He becomes a way. He becomes a truth, possibly, a vine, maybe. He becomes a good man. He's a good example. But one among many on a long list of religious figures that, that we might follow. Ultimately, all that the Father planned to do from before the foundation of the world through Jesus is rendered of very little value. Syncretism, it places us in control, both and thinking. It places us at the center again. We are the ones that save ourselves. We can formulate our own religion. We can create our own image of Jesus that suits us. And the gospel is gutted. Now, Satan, he doesn't usually show up and say to us, deny Jesus as Savior and Lord. No, he comes and says, there's another way. There's another option. There's another solution. Jezebel doesn't show up saying, deny Jesus. No, we'd go away. She says, you can have Jesus and be socially acceptable and prosperous. This is spiritual wisdom. This is the way the world works. I lived in a city for some time where if you wanted to climb the corporate ladder, in most companies, you needed to become a member of a secret society. That was just part of the way the world worked. And so sometimes Christians would be tempted to join those secret societies. If you wanted to reach executive status, it's just what you did. And so I would ask Christians that had joined those secret societies, why? 
And they would invariably answer in this way, is so that we could do works of charity. Well, all of us know that you don't have to join a secret society to do good. But that's the deception of the evil one. The true motivation behind joining the secret society is so that you reach executive status. We need to walk with the clarity of Jesus. Satan has a vested interest in syncretism. He always wants Jesus to be less than he truly is. Why does he encourage sexual immorality? Well, with sexual immorality, he distorts the image of God in us as human beings, in marriage, in family, in the church, and eventually in society. His desire is to wipe the image of God from the face of the earth. And not only that, sexual immorality impacts us as whole persons. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual promiscuity, it impacts us physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. It impacts us in every way. Satan knows that. Jesus detests assimilation. He detests accommodation. Jesus detests compromise. There is no room in the kingdom of Jesus for compromise. Now, the spirit of Jezebel is the spirit of our age. Let's be careful not to separate our faith in Jesus from the rest of our lives. Let's not be those that worship Jesus on the weekend and then from Monday through Friday operate by another set of rules as we live family, go to work, study, whatever we do. Our faith in Jesus is meant to impact every area of our lives, our individual life, our relationships, our work, the way we use our money, the way we use our time. It's not compromise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was tempted to compromise. The Nazi regime was growing in power, the 30s in Germany. 1937, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he argues that our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. Our hearts have room for only one. May our hearts be tied to one only. And may his name be Jesus. We will all give an account for our good and bad deeds. What will Jesus do with Jezebel and her followers? Well, first of all, he gives her time to repent. repent. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus is much more patient, merciful, gracious than we would ever be. His hope is that Jezebel herself will repent, and so he gives her time. But she doesn't. Then secondly, he says he will make her physically sick. Those who participate in her practices will also suffer. You cannot be a part of the teachings of Jezebel and not suffer. But again, Jesus demonstrates grace. His desire is that they repent. 
Then thirdly, he says he will strike her children dead. And children in this context are the spiritual followers of Jezebel. Why would he strike them dead? Well, his desire is to save the church of Thyatira. He says he wants the churches to know that he is actually the one who searches hearts and minds. His desire is that the churches will fear him, that they will remember that he is the righteous judge. His hope is to save the church. Jesus wants the church to know that he detests compromise and that he demands repentance for compromise. It's out of his love for us that he calls us to turn from a life of compromise. So Jesus is here this morning among us. What would he say? If Jesus were to say, I know your deeds, what would come after that? Maybe Jesus is pruning us to save us from our self-deception. Maybe he is pruning us to save us from the deception of the world around us. Maybe he is pruning us so that we will not lose sight of the world around us and his heart for the lost. This week with one of our members, I spoke with one of our local politicians, and when I asked him, how should Willingdon Church contribute to our city, the first words out of his mouth were, the moral fabric of our society is coming undone. Everyone is reeling. Everyone is feeling it. Now, those are sobering words. If those words are true, and following that statement, he started to talk about what he was seeing in our city. What does Jesus see? when he looks at Burnaby or when he looks at Metro Vancouver? Does he see a society that is coming undone? And if we as his disciples, we his people, are in the camp of syncretism or in the camp of both and or in the camp of sexual immorality, we are on the sidelines. There is no way that we can participate in the battle. We have removed ourselves. And that's why Jesus calls us back to himself. We will all give an account for good and bad deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Jesus, he penetrates us with his gaze to cleanse us not just to gather information but so that we might be convicted changed, transformed. Look at what he says in verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus has no desire to overburden the church. He doesn't say, hey, you need a whole bunch of courses. You need a whole bunch of instruction to understand. No, just hold fast to what you have. What would they have? Well, the church in Thyatira would have had the Old Testament and the apostolic teaching. It's what we have. They would have had Jesus. Jesus says to the church, hold fast to what you have. You have the bread of life. You have the light of the world. You have the door to life. 
You have the good shepherd that can lead you to abundant life. You have the resurrection in the life. You have the way, the truth in the life. You are in the true vine. Hold fast to what you have. You have all you need. What's his promise for those who endure and overcome? To those who remain firm. Jesus wants the church of Thyatira to see farther. And so he says to them, those who endure and overcome, they will be given authority over the nations. If we are in Jesus, then in Jesus we already have authority over the evil one. If we are in Jesus, we already have, by the Holy Spirit, power to not sin. And when Jesus returns, the day is coming when we, together with Jesus, will reign over the nations. That's what the scriptures say. And not only that, those who endure and overcome will receive the morning star. The morning star is Jesus himself. The morning star appears at the darkest time of the night, about 2 or 3 a.m., when it appears that the dawn will never come. But it's in that moment that there's a faint, small flicker of the morning star. And as soon as you see the morning star, you know that the dawn is coming. It's inevitable. It is just a matter of time. Just a matter of time until the dawn sweeps the night away. The morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. I love that quote. The morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. Jesus is coming back. Those who endure, those who overcome, they will enter the eternal day of his presence and will reign forevermore. And so Jesus says to this church that's being threatened with compromise, threatened with syncretism, tempted by things in the world, says, don't lose sight of what's ahead of you. Look farther. Jesus decrees and delivers on the best promises. These promises of Jesus, they should fill us with courage, with hope, with strength, with confidence. Jesus says in verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When the Spirit speaks, our role is to listen and to listen well. We have eyelids, we don't have earlids. But we develop the art of selective listening. My wife has confirmed this gift in my life. (laughs) We filter. Are we hearing what the Spirit is saying to us? What is Jesus saying? Jesus says, I am he who searches mine and heart. I discern everything. And I actually detest compromise. And if you are living a life of compromise, then repent. Turn back to me. I decree and I will deliver on the best promises. If Jesus were to speak to us audibly here this morning, and he would say to us, to Willingdon Church, I know your deeds. What would come after that? I believe that Jesus would come with words of affirmation. I believe that Jesus would say, I've seen your service. I've seen your faith. I've seen your love. Your endurance. I ask you to hold on to what you have. Hold on to the word of God. Hold on to me. 
don't compromise. Do not compromise. Where you have compromised, repent. Come back to me. I'm the true vine. Life is in me and me alone. Don't take your eyes off of the promise. I will be faithful to my promise. If you endure, you will reign with me forevermore, and you will receive the morning star. Amen. Amen. I want that morning star, don't you? (laughs) Amen. Let's stand to pray. Pastor Ron is going to be at the piano. We want to take time for prayer. I'll invite the prayer team to come forward. One of the great gifts of the church is that we can pray for each other. So you can come forward for prayer. Give your heart to Jesus, whether it's the first time or a recommitment to him. Let's take time to pray. Maybe you want to pray with someone next to you. God bless you.